Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am so glad you're here. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. Hi, friends. I am very excited about today's podcast episode. It is a little different because two of my colleagues, comrades, and dear friends, Tristan Katz and Lauren Roberts, interviewed me for this episode of Finding Refuge. They've launched their new podcast. It's called All the Fuck In, and it really centers people who are entrepreneurs and really challenging the oppressive systems that are in place, and entrepreneurs who are centering social justice in their work. So let me tell you a little bit more about Tristan and Lauren. Tristan is a digital strategist specializing in business and marketing, coaching and consulting, web and graphic design. Tristan's based on the ancestral land of the Cowlitz and Clackamas peoples, also known as Portland, Oregon. They serve a wide range of clients in the wellness industry, including myself, including yoga teachers, healing arts practitioners, and other prominent change makers. They are driven by the desire to connect with others, to support their clients' businesses' growth, and to help their clients show up more fully, authentically, and easefully in their work. Lauren is a coach, strategist, and anti-oppression facilitator for progressive candidates and high-integrity people. Through one-on-one coaching, group programs, and courses, she helps her clients tap into their wisdom, learn skills, and take action to transform their lives, their communities, and the world without burning out or getting hung up on what anyone thinks. As a trauma survivor and yoga teacher, Lauren is deeply committed to confronting and healing systemic oppression within ourselves, the culture, and our politics. So that's a little bit about Lauren and Tristan, and I hope you enjoy the interview. I also really want to encourage you to check out their podcast, All the Fuck In. Thanks, friends. Hi, Michelle and Lauren. It's good to see you both. It's good to see y'all. Happy to be here. Hi. So we are really excited to have Michelle Cassandra Johnson on the podcast today. And I would love, Michelle, if you could introduce yourself, say your pronouns, share a bit about the work that you do, and also weave in locating yourself and offering your sun, moon, and rising signs as well as that's become part of our introductory practices on the podcast. Yes. I love that you have asked this question about astrology. So my name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, as you said, and I live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I am black. I'm 45, cisgender, heterosexual, middle-class, a citizen, abled. And I'm sure there are other identities that I didn't name that I embody, but those are some that are in my awareness right now that I'm present to at this moment. And my sun sign is Leo. My rising sign is Cancer and my moon sign is Aquarius. And Lauren, your moon sign is Aquarius. Yes. And I mentioned that yesterday in a conversation Tristan and I had, I'm like, it made me feel so cool. (laughs) And, and there's there's a lot of overlap actually. My sun is Cancer, my rising is Leo. So oh, see, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> All of this makes sense to me now. And 
I, what do I do in the world? A lot of different things. I have been leading anti-racism work for now, I think 24 years and have done that in so many spaces in communities and organizations, corporations, all over the place, nonprofits. And so a lot of experience with anti-racism work. And I'm also a yoga teacher, as you all know, and have been teaching yoga since 2009 and became certified so that I could integrate yoga into my psychotherapy practice. I was a, I'm still licensed, but clinical social worker for 20 years. So I ended up going through yoga teacher training for that reason. And instead of continuing clinical social work, I do more intuitive healing work. I wanted to bring divination tools in into my practice and not be diagnosing people and not dealing with insurance companies and wanted to just be able to embrace more of my holistic approach with people in my practice. So that's why I transitioned to intuitive healing. And I wrote a book called Skill in Action that came out in 2018. And I'm writing the second edition of it now. And I also this summer, spring um, and summer wrote a book that is entitled Finding Refuge Heartwork for Healing Collective Grief. And it's available for pre-sale now. And I'm very excited about it. It comes out in July. And it is all about my own personal stories of grief. And I relate them to the collective and what we're responding to now in the middle of a pandemic and the pandemic of white supremacy and systems of oppression. And each chapter ends with a ritual. So that's the other thing I'll say. I'm very into ritual and ceremony and practice and sit in front of my altar every day and pray and pull cards and journal to ground myself and really be clear about how I want to show up that day in the world. So that's a little bit about what I, what I do. Thank you. We're, I know I can speak for Lauren and say that we're both so inspired by your work and that we both have learned and continue to learn so much from and with you. And we've already referenced you and your book and your teaching several times in the episodes that we've recorded thus far. So yeah, we're really grateful that you're joining us for this conversation. Thank you. And I especially love that you already brought up ritual because that was one of the first things I would really love to ask you about is, has that always been a practice that you've had in one way or another? When did it come in if it wasn't something you've always done? I find it just so important to keep people going. So with everything you have going on and given the depth and how heavy the work can be sometimes, I'm just curious how that became a practice for you. Yes, that is a good question. So as a child, and this still continues, I would find four-leaf clovers all of the time and hearts everywhere and just notice synchronicities. Although I didn't understand that's what was happening at the, the time. I just, I feel like I knew there were signs and the, the natural world was speaking to me in some way, but I didn't really engage in ritual that much or what I would call ritual, even though my mother is very intuitive and has premonitions. And my grandmother transitioned in 2017 had premonitions as well and was quite intuitive. And they both were Christian and went to Baptist church and very devoted and definitely had a ritual around their faith. And so I experienced that with them. But again, I don't think I had the words to call it ritual. I just called it, we go to church every Sunday and this is what we do. And we pray in this way. And that's definitely ceremony and ritual now that I know more about it. And I was married to someone, his name's Jeff, and we were married for 12 years and together for 17 years. And he was a scientist. He still is a scientist and ecologist. And so our brains worked and continued to work in different ways. And I think he really needed like 
answers for things that were rational. And that makes sense because of being a scientist. And, and I was doing therapy and yoga and connecting a lot with the natural world for healing. And I think that's what made me begin to be like, I actually need more room to like work with ritual. And it's not that he didn't accept it. I just think it didn't make sense. And I actually understand a lot about his history and why he needed things to add up. So I'm not judging him in any way. I love him dearly. And in that relationship, I felt very limited. Like I didn't have any altars. I did meditate every day and, and would pull cards like with my friends outside of the house. And it's not as if he said, you can't do this. It just didn't feel like there was room for that to happen. And so after we shifted our relationship and went through a divorce and we're good friends now, I moved out and I, when we were going through the separation and I like built altars everywhere in my home and you know, would go to the metaphysical store or magical store and buy crystals and um, would find things out in the natural world and bring them back to the altar and would read books about magic and um, ritual and ceremony. And so I feel like I was like, I'm limited. And then I just expanded into this space of centering ritual and healing and recognizing that, which I knew this, I think I reaffirmed in building altars and, and engaging in ritual reaffirmed what I knew, which is that I'm bigger than my body. <laughs> right? I'm in relationship with all energies and sentient beings and the trees outside. And it's really pretty in North Carolina right now because it's fall and the colors are shifting and I'm connected. I have two beehives. I'm connected to other beings and animals and spirits. And so I feel like I knew that. And then it was reaffirmed when I had space to be like, I'm going to practice ritual. And it, you know, at first it was just for me. And then during that time of going through a separation, I ended up creating a, a circle and invited over a bunch of my friends. And we've been meeting in circle for years and years now. And every month they would come over and we would eat and we would set up the circle and call in the directions and do an invocation and pull cards and sometimes do collective spells together. And that really like propelled me into, I actually want to hold space for ritual and I want it to be part of everything I do. And it doesn't have to be a collective spell or everything I just described. It could be just pulling a card or going to stand next to the huge tree that's outside of my front door or going to see the bees and meditating with them for a moment. So I think about ritual as everything, like it's a way of being and, and living. I love that. Yeah. It's like bringing the sacred into everything you do in a way. And I love how you said it like reminds you that you're bigger than your body because it's so easy to forget that all the time. Ugh, we're not told it is that. hard. Mm-hmm. I know. I feel like it's complex to be in a human body and it's challenging. <laughs> so it's like freeing when I think I'm actually much bigger than this body. And it just helps, I think, me feel it feel less difficult to be in a body. I love being in a body. I'm glad I'm in this lifetime and it feels challenging at times. Especially this particular lifetime is fraught. That's right. Yes. And I know you also have a very deep practice of communicating with your ancestors. Did that practice begin around the same time or was that always present for you? How did that evolve or has it evolved? Well, I don't remember calling in ancestors during that time that I just described after I moved out of of my house and, and that relationship. And what happened is, and you know this, Tristan, I moved to Portland and my father passed away 11 days after I arrived. I hadn't seen him in years. It had been seven years, I feel like, since I'd last seen him. But I wasn't expecting that shock to happen (laughs) to my nervous system after I landed in a different place all the way across the country from North Carolina. And what happened prior to him passing away and me hearing the news is I had gone to a women's circle that 
my friend Stacy held. And Stacy's actually a friend that I knew in North Carolina and, and Stacy moved to Portland. And so she had this circle every month and I happened to one on a Sunday and then my father passed away like four days later. And the people from that circle really held me after that happened. And then my grandmother, Dorothy, transitioned in November of 2017. So it was just a few months after my father transitioned. And I was with her and I was only home because it was my dad's memorial. And I didn't plan that. His sisters did. And and I was there and went out to dinner with her and she had a stroke in front of me. And I was very clear that I was called home. Like I was, I have no question that I was called home to be with her in that moment. And after she transitioned, and I think as she was transitioning, I kind of knew she was going to be the ancestor that would show up for me in a way that I I could understand. I think ancestors show up for me all the time, but she's the one like I call in all the time and feel her presence a lot. And that I think began to just move me into a practice of calling in my ancestors, Dorothy, and then other ancestors, healthy ancestors known to me and unknown. And more recently, I've started to cultivate a relationship with my great-grandmother, Angie, which I feel like one of my beehives, they're very connected with her. And I've started to call her in a lot more and just, I'm trying to remember things about her and her lifetime, because for a long time, I would describe her as she was born into slavery. And that's what I would say. And that's true. But I was really limiting her to her condition, like the conditions that were in place when she was born. And someone reflected that to me. And I was like, oh, she was much bigger than that. You know, like I'm bigger than my body. And so I've been calling her in as well. And then occasionally my grandmother's sister, Olivia, shows up for me. I've had one experience where I knew it was her and she came in. So can I yeah. ask how you know who it is when they're present? Like <laughs> I've had moments in in group practice where some sort of ancestor invocation is prompted and I go blank. You know, it's just not something that I have yet to access. It feels really far away from me. And I'm sure that there are reasons for that in part, probably mm-hmm. because I'm Jewish and there's probably a lot of loaded trauma there that, you know, is I'm somehow, whatever, who knows what's going on. There's a block. I know there's a block for a lot of us in this culture. This isn't something that we are encouraged to talk about or tap into. And so when a presence comes through to you, how do you know how to identify exactly who it is that you're feeling? That's so interesting that you asked me that because my mother, I just saw her and she was talking about how my father was showing up and I, and my grandmother showed up for her. And I, I asked her, how do you know that it's them? And she said, well, I just see like a blur, right? And it's sort of like imagining what the wind looks like. If we could see the wind, that's what I think she sees. And I actually see people like I see my grandmother or when Olivia came and I saw her and there were other ancestors around her and my grandmother, Dorothy was there as well. So I, I tend to see the image of who they are. So it's not like my mom, she knows they're there. She can feel them, but I actually see them in the form they, they took in their bodies and the lifetime in which I knew them. So, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And do you have, I forget the term you use, but like you said, your mom and your grandmother have visions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that show up for you as well? It does different than my mom though. My mom's premonitions are usually, I mean, it's like a warning that something is going to happen. I have intuitive hits like that, but mine don't feel as hers feel very focused on that. And mine don't. So I do have visions or I have dreams. I have a lot of dreams <laughs> and with messages in them and, you know, signs for me and sometimes people, ancestors in those dreams speaking to me. And I just know that they're sharing wisdom with me or telling me that I need to do certain things. 
So that's how it shows up for me, kind of premonition or, or knowing. That's so interesting. Yeah. Lauren, do you have a practice or a connection with your ancestors? Is this something um, that's part of your life? I wanted to bring it in more, but I, you know, like a lot of white folks, I have a pretty messy family history in terms of harm doers. And there's also just a lot I don't know, a lot of addiction, a lot of mental illness. So I like what you said, Michelle, about calling in healthy ancestors. So that, that may be something to lean into. Uh, we'll have to explore a collaboration. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Healthy Yet another one. <laughs> Michelle, uh-huh. can you, can you tell us how you got started in doing dismantling racism work? You know, I listened to you and Tema Oaken in your podcast recently, and it sounded like the two of you were referencing that you had just showed up at a workshop in North Carolina and the path then just unfolded ahead of you. I would love to hear about that moment and how you recall the beginning and, and the, you know, the initial evolution. Yeah. So what happened is, and Tema may not remember this, I went to a workshop because I was on a board of directors for an organization that's called North Carolina Lambda Youth Network. It was a youth-led organization for LGBTQ folks. And they sent all of their board members to dismantling racism training. And so I went not really knowing what I was going to or, or getting into. And Tema was one of the trainers. And the other trainer was, is her name's Brie Carlson. And I actually remember so much about this training because I think about 60 people attended this training half BIPOC folks, half white folks. So it felt like a diverse group. Like I wasn't the only BIPOC person there and people from very different backgrounds and people who did different works. There were religious leaders there and folks who I think challenged some of the religious leaders edges and boundaries in a lot of different ways. And that tension felt interesting to me. Like we're trying to bring all these people together to focus on racism. And yet there's a lot of difference in how we're showing up, even though there's a common goal to understand personal, institutional, and cultural racism. And we were on an old plantation in South Carolina for this training. So it felt like, talk about ancestors, it felt eerie in a lot of ways to be there, to be talking about racism. And Tema was, which I've witnessed this so many times in my relationship with her, just witnessing her and leading it to racism work, she was like frustrated. Like she was, she kept saying, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I've since seen her do this, like, I don't know how many times, 10 times be like, I'm done, not doing it. And so that's what I remember about her, which is so interesting because I realized she lived in North Carolina and I came back to North Carolina and I was like, I reached out to her and said, I want to do this work. So you just knew. After I just, I just knew, I was like, I want to do this work. And I met with her and Kenneth Jones, who passed away, but she mentioned Kenneth in my interview with her and she usually calls him in and, and I knew him. So we, we met and they were like, sure, you can train up with us. And so what happened is, and this is the training she was talking about, I went to this training, which was connected to what was called a community of practice. And so it was different than like just a two-day dismantling racism training. It was a training. And then we met for six months every other week and different people led over time, different people facilitated different sections of this. And so I think the training was 2001. That was when September 11th happened, mm-hmm. wasn't it? So I had trained up in some trainings prior to that. So I was attending trainings, leading certain sections, but not confident in facilitating at all. Like I didn't really know the curriculum very well, but I had more shadowed. And then I went to this training and it was the day after, I think, September 11th. And Brie could not get there to train. And so Tema was like, 
do you want to do this? And so I ended up leading the training with her, not fully knowing the curriculum, not really knowing, but we intentionally held the training because we felt like it was a moment we needed to be together. And so we went ahead with it, but that was the kind of the way we had to do it. And so I was just in it. And then from then on, I was, you know, in in lots of trainings and in it and have been doing it for such a long time now. But that was like the moment, because prior to that, I really... I just witnessed and shadowed and led little parts, but this was like leading the two day training with Tema, which was really amazing. And it was also really sweet that it was part of a community of practice versus a like, Hey, we're here for two days and then we're going to leave. So that's how that happened. And I'm doing the math on this. So if you're 45 now, you would have been in like your mid twenties. Yes. When I started. Yeah. When I went to my first training, the one I mentioned that was in South Carolina, I was 22 or 23, I think, 22. So yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, not that I don't want to say like young people can't do that work, but it is, it takes so much skill and to just, especially at that, I'm imagining myself at 25, 26 being thrown in. I mean, that would have, that would have been a little intimidating. So that's a pretty cool start that you had, you know, just going for it. Yeah. I mean, I think it helped me be more confident because I just had to do it. It was like, right. Just have to show up in this moment. And I wanted to, after Mm -hmm. I was like invited to really, I wanted to. And I think it really supported me and in facilitations when things happen that are unexpected, I think I'm pretty grounded and I'm sure it's connected to that moment of being like, I just have to show up and do this thing. I don't fully understand, but I do understand how racism works and I know how it feels. So I can speak to that. And I know what the culture is doing to us that's harming us. So I can speak to that. You know, like, I think I learned in that moment of training, like how to just be grounded in the middle of like, not exactly knowing everything about what's going to happen or how things will unfold, which is actually very useful in times like this. (laughs) It's like very useful. And in just life, right? Like we don't know. And that really leads me to my next question, which is, did you sense like, oh yeah, I'm going to combine social work with dismantling racism work, you know, like, did you see a path forward or did that kind of just all evolve organically? And then yoga came into the mix organically. How did it all happen? When I went to the training, I was working as a high school social worker and I was doing some work around diversity in the school and also it set up a conflict resolution program, working with the students, a mediation program for them. And so I I feel like I was, of course, having an embodied experience of being racialized and othered because of my race. And I was witnessing that in the students in the school. And I was trying to set up programs that might bring more awareness to diversity. That was the language I was using at the time. And then I went to this anti-racism training and had language all of a sudden for personal, institutional, and cultural racism. It liberated me because it made me feel like this is not just me or just the students at the school. It's happening everywhere. Now I have a framework. It was very freeing in that way. And I went, we went through history and I understood, okay, how did we arrive in this particular moment and, and which patterns are we replicating and, and how? After that training, went back to the school and did more work around dismantling racism in that space. And I mean, I think dismantling racism or any form of oppression is so linked to social work because that's so connected to social justice. So I feel like that was in me already, but I just had more pieces to put together. I had the framework, I had relationships with the students. So I sort of knew how to introduce the framework to them and then all the teachers. And this like morphed into every year we'd have a day. It was called diversity day 
Again, that was the language people they used at that time. And I invited in all of these speakers and the principal let me do this. I don't really know why, but he did. He kind of let me do what I wanted in my social work position, which meant a lot of programming for the students to speak to the things they were experiencing. And I ended up inviting all of these speakers to come in and work with the students and work with the teachers because really I wanted the teachers to dismantle racism within themselves and treat the students better. Like that was my goal. That became the goal. And so I think they just you know, anti-racism and social work merged in that way. And then being a social worker and eventually in private practice, I mean, I worked a lot with folks who experienced trauma and I myself have experienced trauma. And so I just remember talking about the body and wanting more tools around mindfulness, but not knowing how to teach about mindfulness or embodiment. And that's why I went to yoga teacher training. And then it's sort of all, I mean, it's all connected to me. Even the finding refuge, the grief work is connected because I was sitting with people's grief and I was like witnessing them grieving and grieving myself because of what they were sharing with me and the experiences they'd been through, which was a lot to hold. So I just think they're all linked and at times people don't really understand it, but I think they're connected. I under, obviously I understand how they're connected, but all of them seem to relate to injustice and, you know, the trauma we're experiencing in the world individually and collectively and the ways in which we're trying to figure out how to heal. I think that's at the heart of all of the work I I do. I just wanted to reflect back. Like the reason your work has always resonated so much with me is it was something I always sensed just like being a highly sensitive person in the world that like what's happening on an individual level is amplified on the collective level and we're influenced each way. But the way that you put words to it is so helpful. And I just wanted to take a second and just appreciate you for for all of the work you brought into the world and how unapologetically you have linked, you know, these different worlds that in some people's minds might be different areas of practice. But like you said, it's all the same stuff, especially on a spiritual level. So I'm just really grateful for it. Thank you. And one of the things that Lauren and I keep kind of stumbling upon so far in these early conversations on this podcast is like, we're kind of dancing around the concept that's perpetuated in dominant culture that like you pick a career path, you pick a degree and that's it. It's rigid. It's linear. You know, there's a start point and an end point and that's it. And one of the things that I feel like Lauren and I are sharing with one another in these conversations is the way in which each of our career paths have not been linear in the way in which they've been Mm -hmm. quite messy at times, both personally and professionally. And the kind of like, quote unquote, detours we've taken or the ways we felt, quote unquote, lost. And now here we are both really excited about the work that we're doing. And while it doesn't sound necessarily that you're referring to any moments of messiness or feeling lost, though I'm sure they may have occurred for you because it's natural to, it does sound like there have been different paths and turns. And now here you are residing like in the center, in the agency and autonomy of it all and putting forward the work that's, you know, coming through you, that's coming to you that you're inspired to create. Yeah, I think I've taken turns and I'm sure y'all have witnessed this. I trust what my ancestors want me to do. And I listen, like moving across the country was not anything I ever planned to do ever. Even if like a separation was happening, I didn't plan to move across the country. And then I did. And I knew I was going for a reason. I didn't really know why I like knew to go. And then I knew to come back to North Carolina. I feel like I've been held in this way with messages and ancestors and energies and my own intuition and listening and have really cultivated that instead of resisting it. 
which I think is scary. Like, you know, when I went into private practice full-time, that was scary because I wasn't going to have a consistent paycheck from a job and retirement, you know, like that's scary. So I've just taken these, I guess, leaps of faith over and over. And they don't just feel like that. They feel rooted in what my intuition is telling me to do or to focus on or where to go or what's needed. You know, often this is connected to the collective and what I think is needed. And really it's not just based on me. It's like messages coming through, like writing, finding refuge and focusing on collective grief is not something I would have said I was going to do two or three years ago. Like that wasn't. And then an idea came through to lead a retreat for that. And now I know why look at the moment we're in. Like I'm very clear that I was supposed to do this and that's how I do it. I get messages and I listen unless they're obviously if they're messages, they don't feel aligned. So I listen to the messages that feel aligned with my path and my higher self. And I trust that. And I really appreciate having a practice of trusting my intuition and higher self. And there's evidence that I'll be supported. Like that's what I have evidence of, not that I'm going to fail, which I don't believe in anyway. I do make mistakes and I guess I have regrets about things. I don't think I feel that very often, but I'm not perfect. So I do make mistakes and kind of, I wish I'd done it this way, but usually I just feel really grounded in the choices I'm making because of being connected to my intuition. And it sounds like being present with presence too, right? Which we can't really do if we're not trusting ourselves and we can't trust ourselves if we're not present too. It's like the two intersect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And need one another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to say, I recognize that, you know, not everyone has the same choices I do. And so I I know y'all know this and I want to name it. And I've had agency because of some privileges, right? And some embodied identities that are privileged and access to certain spaces because of education or my network. I'm not saying everyone has the same opportunity or the same capacity to listen to intuition or practice meditation every day to deepen a connection with intuition or their higher self. Like, this is a complete privilege and it feels like it's also my birthright. Like I, I really want to have space to be present to myself and what is needed to promote healing in our world. And I recognize that people are making different choices and are set up to not be able to do some of the things that I'm doing. So I had the option to pick different career paths. And when I was married, I had the option to work when I wanted to work, although I worked a lot of the time, but work when I wanted to work because my partner made enough money to take care of us. That's not everyone's reality, you know? And when I moved to Portland, I had an office. So I sold my office and I had money to move, right? I just want to name for folks to like, this is just my experience. It's not everyone's experience. Although I wish everyone did have the space to do what they wanted to do for our healing, right? And for their own healing. Well, and I feel like what you are creating in the world between your teaching and your writing and your podcast now, which is so beautiful, like in some ways, I do feel like you're one of those people making that space for others to find that deeper connection to their intuition and like reflecting back their wholeness, even if they don't have the luxury or the privilege of a full 30 minute meditation practice every morning, like there are other ways to kind of find your way into that work. And it feels like the way you show up is to me, it feels like part of your mission is to make that available for more people too. Mm-hmm. That is right. I interviewed Francis Weller, who wrote The Wild Edge of Sorrow. I interviewed him last week. And at the end, he said that I asked very good interview questions. And I thanked him for the medicine. He just brought a lot of medicine. And he said, thank you for the medicine. And he said, I think that you like highlight gifts in others, like the gifts people embody. He's like, I think you, the way you ask questions or the way you are brings that out in folks. And I wouldn't have necessarily framed it that way. And I think he's right. It's kind of the way you just framed it. It's I do try to make space for that to happen because I want people to remember their whole, like I want that. 
because I think we will shift the way we are as a culture if we are able to remember our wholeness. Like that feels so true to me. So thank you for saying that to me. Yeah. Well, it's definitely been my experience of you, that's for sure. And kind of going along with Tristan's question about, you know, career paths taking these twists and turns and not being linear. I know one thing we talked a little bit about over email was how given the breadth of all these different things that you do to someone from the outside, especially folks who are so indoctrinated into dominant culture and needing to put people in boxes, that that has been challenging for you sometimes to explain what it is that you do, that it's not just, I'm a social worker who does anti-racism training and also teaches yoga. Like it's messier than that, but also makes total sense. And speaking of wholeness, it's all you. So I'd love if you would share a little bit about what that experience is like of holding all these different pieces of your work and yeah, any reflections on just what those conversations are like with other folks who don't necessarily get it. I think many of us are indoctrinated in the way that you named of there's a path, right? Maybe we go to school or we learn from somebody, right? Or apprentice with someone and we do this thing, whatever it is for the rest of our lives. And that works for some folks. I feel like that is aligned with some people. And I don't think it's ever been my path. If I think about just being like in high school and working in different projects and groups I was part of, or I think about college or graduate school, I've always done many different things. So this way of doing all the things you just named feels like my energy. It feels like how I am, who I am. And I think it's felt challenging for some folks when they're like, oh, you teach yoga, right? And they don't really understand that yoga is like how I live or strive to live, right? I've got work to do, but like... I don't think people get that. They think it's like you breathe and you move through poses. And that's part of, you know, how people are conditioned to think about yoga in this country, which is a whole nother conversation, but an important one. Or people are like, you're a social worker. So initially people were like, so you work at social services. I've never done that, right? Like that wasn't my path. Or you work in a school and you're doing truancy. No, I'm actually not. I'm trying to like meet with the students and create programs for them and see them as whole beings because people don't see teenagers as whole beings. And I really do because I love them. I love hanging out with teenagers. And I think with anti-racism, like people have thought the same thing. So you, you talk about diversity and equity. And I think it's challenging for people to... Maybe it's a reflection of of culture not conditioning us to see our wholeness. I think it's been challenging for people to see that and like to see, well, Michelle can do this thing and this thing and this thing, right? And they're connected. And I think people just question it because they're trying to understand it, but also they do want to put me in a box. It's like writing this book, Finding Refuge, I know it's going to create a different piece of work for me, a different way of doing my work. And I think like some folks in the yoga community might be like, what's happening? Is she teaching yoga about grief? Is she, you know, what is this? And it's like, well, I don't know what it will look like, but I think it's very connected to, as I said, living yoga and our wholeness and union, right? And how do we come into union in such a polarizing time and space? So I just think it's an adjustment for folks. And the other thing that happens is people think I work all of the time or that I'm a workaholic. I do work a lot. I don't identify as a workaholic because I feel like I have so much energy for the things that I'm doing that it feels like I'm just going to finish the project. I could create some more boundaries around this, but I'm excited about what I'm doing. I feel nourished by what I'm doing. And so people think you never sleep. And I'm like, well, I do sleep and I do take Jasper on walks. He's sitting right next to me. And I do hang out with my partner and his daughter. And I do, like, I, I do see my mom, right? I'm a full person doing these things. And I'm not doing these things as a measure of who I am. I'm doing them because I feel like this is what I'm meant to do. This is my dharma. This is my work. This is my practice. 
So that's how some of the conversations have gone. And while I've had those conversations, some people then have been like, can you talk to me about how to merge social work and yoga? Like they're really excited about it too. Like, how did you get on this path? I'm kind of like, I don't exactly know how to explain all of it. And it's possible. Like figure it out. What do you want to do? How do you want to set this up? Do you want to work half time as a yoga teacher and as a social worker, the other half? Do you want to write a book? Do you want to, whatever it is. And I think dominant culture limits our capacity to dream. I think that, and I think that, you know, we have to learn how to dream and vision individually and together. And I think that's a practice that dominant culture doesn't want us to do because we'll imagine something that is so much more liberating than what is happening now. So that's, I think, at the root of it. Like we need to remember to dream. I'm sitting here thinking like, amen. (laughs) Yeah, I'm writing that down. Like I I just typed it out. (laughs) I didn't know I was going there. I I was like, where'd that come from? But that came through. It came through. I love that so much, especially since Lauren and I are talking a lot about creating work and businesses that thrive based on the things that we want to do and discerning what it is that doesn't suit us anymore. Like Lauren, just the other day we were talking, and this will be in the last episode that just aired, but we were talking about Lauren's path in like on Capitol Hill and in politics and policy and like how she listened to herself and figured out that she needed to pivot in a different direction. And then you have to trust that like, you don't really know where that's going to take you. You just know that you're doing the thing that you need to do to take care of yourself and that you'll figure it out, which Lauren might not have felt at the time that she made those big moves and decisions, but (laughs) (laughs) I was very scared. (laughs) But now here she is doing work that's informed by those years of experiences, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's such a good conversation. And I also feel that it's dangerous in the yoga and wellness world to look at Michelle and your work and think she's just a yoga teacher who is naturally doing anti-racism work as a Black woman. And there's just so much more fullness and wholeness to who you are and what comes through you when you're showing up to teach and offer. Yeah. I think if people read Skill in Action or listen to me speak somewhere or read something I've written in my newsletter or something, they'll know that I'm not just one thing. And that I believe like we are not just one thing that's reflected in most of what I put out in the world, because I'm really about humanity and I'm really about us being free. And as I've said, healing, I want that more than anything. I'm like committed. I want us to heal. I can feel that all over my body. Like that is what I'm dreaming about. And all the different ways we can heal too. I don't have an idea about how that happens for everyone. And I just know humanity needs to heal, right? And so how do we do that? So I feel like if people are open and really like listen or look, they'll understand I'm not just a black person teaching yoga and anti-racism within the wellness space, that I'm really about their liberation and mine. That's what I hope to reflect in the world. And I think I do in what I offer. I think so too. (laughs) Yeah, that's my goal. I have sort of a left turn question, if you two might be open to it. And it's about money, if that's okay. And we can totally cut this if it doesn't feel good. But I'm curious, I'll just share for myself. One thing I have really had to untangle in the last six months or so is equating earning money with capitalism and exploiting people. And that that's not the same thing. And one thing I'm always hungry for is teachers of mine or people who are further in their work and doing work for justice. If that shows up for you at all, the idea of like an exchange of money and resources and value feels for you. I'm just so curious, Mm -hmm. very open-ended, anything about money that you would like to share? Because it's so tricky for so many people. 
It is tricky. And it makes sense that as an Aquarius moon, you would be like money. I don't want to engage with that because Aquarians really don't understand money. Like it's not <laughs> yeah. a thing. It's not a currency. We should be exchanged. Like it's not a real thing. So I get that. And yet it's a real thing because we're in a capitalist culture. So I think for a long time, I did not charge my worth, like what I'm worth, partly because no one taught me what to charge. To be clear, like no one sat me down and said, you're offering this service, charge this. So I had to like ask people or just think about it myself, which usually meant I was not charging enough or what I was offering. And I think that a lot of people actually do that unless someone's been like, here's how you deal with money. Here's what you're worth. I knew it was worthy because my mom definitely taught me that. That didn't translate into like dollars and and what I should charge for the like healing practices I was offering. And so that was happening. And I also believe in generosity and supporting people and people supported me. So supporting people in a cause they're connected to, or just some, they're going through something in their life. So I was like not charging enough and, you know, being generous and practicing that. And at some point I just felt like I want to be generous and I want to make money so that I can be generous. And so I can thrive. And I actually want, I want both to happen. And still, I think I just need advice about, I don't really know what to charge for many things because a lot of what I do, it's not like transactional. It's not like I'm going to buy something and it costs this. And I know it's worth that because it's the best value for this thing. It's not like that. Y'all know this with the work you do. Like it doesn't feel that way because it's like healing work or it's like facilitating a transformative process. Like what is the value of that? I mean, if we're thinking about humanity, Like, what do you charge for that? And so I think still I have questions about that. And I'm definitely at a place in my life where I want to have the resources I need to thrive and to pay off my house and to do things that my grandmother, it took her 30 years or my mother, it took her 30 years to pay off her house. Like I want, and I feel like I, and everyone is deserving of this. Like, so I think embracing that it's okay for me to want these things. And that means I'm working and charging and I'm practicing generosity as well. Like I'm at peace with that because I just believe in us thriving. And if I believe in that, I need to thrive too. I don't want to be starving and giving away everything to other people and not being nursed, especially, and I'll contextualize this, in a culture that doesn't want me to thrive. That's sort of the landscape, right? It's not as if I was set up to be given resources based on race, based on other identities, sure. But based on race, I wasn't set up to be resourced or to live really, or to thrive. And unfortunately in a capitalist culture, at times we need money to pay for things to thrive. And other times we need like connection and relationship. And, you know, it's not currency, just isn't money. It's like there are other ways that we are with one another, right? And connect. So that's how I feel about money. And I also, and this relates to yoga. I've been thinking about this a lot because there's a whole conversation about reparations happening in our world. I've been thinking about what it means to be a black person teaching yoga and it not being directly connected to my lineage and thinking about, okay, what is reparation? What do reparations look like? And so I've started a conversation with some folks who are Desi and I'm not approaching the conversation like I know what reparations might look like. I don't know. And at some point I had a moment where I was like, you can't just say that you want to honor this practice and you are appropriating and you understand that you actually need to do something deeper. And so I'm also in a practice of like, what does repair look like related to money? If it's money, it may actually be something else that people want. I don't know, but I'm also committed to that. So that's how I'm thinking about money. 
It sounds like you're living in the questions with it. And I'm definitely trying to do the same. It is so messy. And it's not like either or, which I know from the article that Tama and Kenneth wrote, it's like, Mm -hmm. that's part of white supremacy culture thinking. It would be really easy to just be like, here's the right answer of how to deal with money when you're doing this work. But that's not a thing. Unfortunately, unfortunately, because it forces some deeper questions and reflection. Yeah. And if I wanted all the money because I wanted to hoard money and power and I felt like abundance wasn't a real thing, that would be different. But I believe there's enough and that the culture, dominant culture perpetuates the idea of and the, the real practice of scarcity, which harms a lot of people. And I just know there's enough and it's how we actually redistribute material resources so that people can thrive. So I'm clear. I don't want money for power and money doesn't mean success. I want money to take care of myself and to give to the things and people that I want to share resources with. And often those are like organizations and people that are doing similar work or doing work connected to humanity in some way, like healing our humanity or shared humanity. So I think the framing is, it's different if, if I felt like I need to make this amount of money to do this thing, because that's like a measure of who I am, that would be really different. Or because I believe there's not enough. I actually know there's enough. That feels clear to me. I'm not saying that as an excuse. It's just another layer that I'll add to the conversation of like, I know there's enough. Yeah. It's an abundant energy. I think of money and social media. Similarly, it's about how we use it. And I know from learning from you and Carrie with like the race and resilience trainings I've been in with you all, like when we do the social location wheel, one of you said at one point that when the margins needs are met, everyone's needs are met. So like if you are thriving, folks less marginalized than you are also like, it's like that a rising tide lifts all boats thing. And so there's like justice even in that. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you for indulging my, my question. Yeah. It's a good one, Lauren. Yeah. So I want to be mindful of our time. Is there anything else you want to share, speak to amplify, highlight if you feel satiated, obviously that's wonderful as well. The last thing I'll say is that I feel like Sometimes I forget the amount of people that are doing work, like the work I'm doing, and are not exactly the same, but are interested in everyone thriving and our liberation. And so I just want to like remind people there are people everywhere doing this, right? Like doing what y'all are doing, doing what I'm doing. We're everywhere. And I'm just saying that now because for me, at least, it's been helpful to remember like resilience is everywhere and people are fighting for the same things I'm fighting for. And it's helping me move through this moment, which I actually feel pretty grounded in. And I know I'm alive, like on purpose at this moment in time, I get it. That feels clear. And I also need reminders that in every part of the world and every pocket of the world, people are doing work so that we can be whole. That is what is happening. So I'll just offer that in case that's some medicine people might need at this time. I needed that. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, that's so beautiful. And I mean, I before we go to, I just want to encourage everyone to pre-order the book, Finding Refuge. I'm so excited. I've ordered mine. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. And people who are listening, Tristan is a big part of this book. Tristan um, did editing, developmental editing, and just like deeper than editing, y'all who are listening, supported me in all the ways. So thank you, Tristan, for, I feel like we're we're birthing this book. You know, that's what it feels like to me. I have been inclined to say that, and then I don't want to take away from the degree to which you have birthed this book. And I just cheered you on and said, how about this? And 
I mean, either way, it, you know how I feel. It's been an honor and a joy, and I can't wait to hold it in my hands and for others to do the same. And it's just an incredible read, and it does offer so much medicine, and I'm excited for it to be out in the world. I'm so excited too. And Lauren, you also have supported me in so many ways with Skill in Action and the curriculum for the people who are training in Skill in Action. And also, I just know have been like a supporter of many of my things. So thank you. Yeah. And thanks for inviting me to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having you. Yeah. Thank you. I, I can't wait to share this with everybody. Yeah. Have a good rest of your day, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks. Y'all take care. You too. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. You can support Finding Refuge by rating it on iTunes and by sharing it with friends and beloveds. You can support my work, the work of Skill in Action Creating Justice in the World, by becoming a patron on Patreon. Visit my page there. It is Skill in Action. I hope you take care of yourself and that we take care of one another. Be well, friends. Thank you.